the sufferings and glory, or the work and rest of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is my sermon title. The sufferings and glory, or what I think is basically synonymous with it, the work and rest of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of that. Sufferings and glory. There would have been no sufferings if there was no sin. So sufferings come by virtue of the fall into sin and the fact that our Lord is the last Adam. What uh, the first Adam failed to do, the last Adam accomplishes. And also the last Adam takes care of the mess that wasn't there before Adam was made and didn't come until Adam's sin and the curse came. So sufferings come in light of sin. Work uh, and glory, by the way, doesn't necessarily come in light of sin. Glory for creatures. It was proferred, I think, offered to Adam. He failed to get there. He wasn't created in a glorified state, but he could have arrived at by the blessing of God and by the action of God because of a covenant enacted by God upon him. He could have arrived at what we end up calling glory or a better state of human nature, a better condition of human nature than his created state because his created state, you remember the old, probably heard Sproul do this, citing Augustine, able to sin, able not to sin. That's Adam's created state. One reason we know that is because he ended up sinning. The state of glory is not able to sin, which none of us have uh, entered yet, by the way, although my wife sometimes thinks I have. Of course not, she doesn't think that because she's, she's a good theologian. None of us are in glory, that ultimate state of not being able to sin. Adam was not created in that state of existence. So sufferings comes by virtue of sin. Glory, not by virtue of sin. It was the thing offered to Adam by virtue of his work or obedience to the covenant enacted upon him. Work and rest. What about work and rest? So the sufferings and glory of our Lord, the work and rest of our Lord. Where do you think I got work and rest? By the way, I got sufferings and glory from the Bible. Pretty, pretty good, huh? pretty safe. We're going to go to the texts. Where do you think I got the work and rest? From the confession. It's in there. But where do you think the confessors and the, and the uh, catechetical writers and authors got the work and rest from? They got it from the Bible. First of all, in the divine exemplar and the work of creation, he worked and then he entered into to rest. But there's also a work-rest um, paradigm that our Lord fits. And I, I read from Hebrews 4, and I know it's a controversial verse. It's translated different in, all, in various translations. Only mine is right. All the rest of them are wrong, right? Uh, I like the New American Standard translation. I'm going to deal with the text after I said a lot of groundwork first. But you can see it in work and the work rest there in, um, in Hebrews. Now, Adam, recall, so anyway, where did I get my title from? I got it from the Bible. Sufferings and glory, work and rest of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now recall that Adam was a public person. Remember? In Adam, all died. Now that's 1 Corinthians 15. Excuse me. I didn't know. That doesn't matter. It happened often. 
That's 1 Corinthians 15, 22. In Adam all die. I've said this before. When did that become true? When did 1 Corinthians 15, 22's words, in Adam all die, when did that become true? When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 or when Adam died? When Adam died. So here we have something that happened a long time ago that's not put in those words until 1 Corinthians 15, but it was true a long time ago. He was a public person. That, it, that means he's a federal or a covenantal head. He represented others. In Adam all die. But the scripture also says, in Christ all shall be made alive. Uh, Paul identifies our Lord as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Verse 22 is the verse that says, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. So here we have two Adams, first and last. We have a public person, we have a public person. Representative of others, representative of others. Under covenant responsibilities, under covenant responsibilities. Are they the exact same covenantal responsibilities? No. Why? Because this one sinned and incurred guilt and curse. So this one has to somehow, some way, take care of that. Plus, see, the first Adam before he fell into sin didn't have to take care of sin and guilt, right? The last Adam has to. The last Adam has to take care of our sin and guilt, and he does that by sufferings. And he has to do what Adam failed to do. Adam sinned, therefore he fell short of glory. Jesus did not sin, therefore he attained glory. Suffered because of our sin, attained glory in order to bring us to a permanent state or condition of human existence that Adam was not created with, was offered, was not created with, and did never himself attain. Listen to Paul in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, excuse me, we have peace with God and we exult in hope of the glory of God. There's that language, glory of God again. Sufferings and glory. We're going to look at the text in, in a minute. But here we have this glory of God now is something, whatever it means, it's something Christians exult in hope of. Confident expectation that God's going to bring us to whatever this glory of God thing is. Now, you think that's the intrinsic, eternal, blessed a glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, in other words, we hope to become God? Or is it something else? I think it's something else. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, listen to Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 2.14. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we gain divine glory, so that radiant, outshining brilliance of infinite glory and, and blessedness is going to be coming out of me and people are going to be worshiping me? No, I don't think it's... Um, I was going to say, I don't think it's that. I know it's not that. But he says here, God called you through the gospel that you may gain, that you may get something you presently don't have. What's that? The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think he's speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his divine nature or his 
human nature. I think it's his human nature because I have a human nature and I can be brought to a better state of existence after the pattern of his own human nature. Glory in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, refers to a status or condition or state of human nature better than its created state. So a permanent state of not being able to sin is what I think Paul means by glory in Romans 3, Romans 5, and 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Adam fell short of that permanent state of not being able to sin. And this is exactly what our Lord takes us to. The condition or the state in which we exist, whereby we are not able to sin. I didn't hear Amen. Oh, she's not here. So we could put it this way. You know what? It is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there was one among us who did not fall short of glory. And he will bring many sons to glory with him. And no one can stop him. Now, having set the stage, hopefully... Let's go look at uh, Luke 24. These are verses we've been to. I know, uh, um, but like Luther said about the gospel, we have to beat it into their heads because they forget it every week like we do. Uh, I want to beat these things into your sweet little heads. And hopefully they'll stick with you. And these things for me, understanding sufferings and glory, work and rest, are really like these twin hinges upon which um, I interpret scripture. And I think you'll see why. So look, look at the words of our Lord in Luke 24, 25 through 27. Then he said to them, this is on the road to Emmaus, to two disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, which is an interesting way of saying that is what they wrote, because that's what he's referring to. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. This is after the resurrection. This is our Lord speaking. He's assuming that the prophets wrote about this, the sufferings and the resurrected glory of our Lord Jesus. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke twenty-four forty-four. Then he said to them, this is the, uh, the disciples now, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with, still with you. Okay, the, I've already said this stuff to you. This is a review. That all things must be fulfilled, which were, now, before he said spoken by the prophets, now it's written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures of the Old Testament. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to enter his glory. It's not what the words are, but these words mean entering glory. 
to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So do you see what entering glory is for our Lord or when it happened? Resurrection from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins, and he goes on and goes forth. Now turn over to Acts 26. Acts 26. This is a sample of this sufferings and glory paradigm that's picked up by the apostles of our Lord as well. Paul picks it up. Peter picks it up. We'll just look at Acts 26, 22, and 23, and uh, a lot of you know what's going on. This is Paul before Agrippa. And um, verses 22 and 23. So he's given his... Uh, testimony, basically. He's justifying his apostolic ministry. I wasn't obedient. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Verse 19, I declared first to everyone in Damascus and in Jerusalem and through all the regions of Judea, then to the Gentiles, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. For these reasons, the Jews seized me because he turned to the Gentiles as well. They didn't like that. Therefore, verse 22, here it is. Having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Now, said, what they spoke, he means what they written. Here it is. Prophets and Moses. That the Christ would suffer, here it is again, Remember, this Christ is the incarnate Son of God, the last Adam. That he would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So here we have sufferings and glory. And Jesus is saying, you guys should have known it. It's in the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, whatever Moses and the prophet said would happen with reference to Christ in terms of his sufferings and we could say entrance into glory, third day resurrection. Whatever they said was taking place, I'm proclaiming that it has taken place. This, what happened in our life history with Jesus of Nazareth, is that which Moses and the prophets said would take place. We live in the days of fulfillment. The Messiah has, God the Son has become incarnate, assumed our nature, our duties, our liabilities, in order to bring us to God. The Old Testament talked about his sufferings in many places and his entrance into glory in many places. It's taken place. It happened on the third day after he died. He was raised from the dead. He rose himself from the dead as well as being raised by both the Father and the Spirit. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 as well, the sufferings and glory. I'm not going to go there. I have way too much material, not on my notes in my head and on my hard drive in lecture format, and I'm scared if I just read the verses, I'm going to go all over the place. But there Peter says, sufferings and glory is something that the prophets of the Old Testament era not only wrote about, but were looking for. They never saw it, but we see it. And it's Peter's way of saying that which the prophets of Christ, who had the spirit of Christ, said would happen with reference to the sufferings and glory of Christ, has happened. Okay. Now think about all that we've said this morning. I'm glad there's nobody here that wasn't here this morning, but even you that were here this morning, I'm sorry. But I hope some of this stuff's connecting together. So, so now I want your mind to go back to this morning's sermon and remember everything I said exactly as I intended it to mean. Okay, are you there? Good. 
I'm getting some looks like, that's impossible. Um, you remember temple language, first Adam, high place, uh, fell short of glory because of his falling short. God appoints a last Adam. He suffers. He enters into glory. He's the tabernacle of God among men. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Sufferings and glory. That's John 2. And John says, oh, by the way, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this. They, they connected dots after the resurrection. You realize that the historical resurrection and the life experience of the apostolic witnesses was like a uh, spectacles for them. Once it happened, they had aha moments. They connected dots that Jesus was connecting in his earthly ministry that they didn't always connect. Get, uh, remember, God forbid it, Lord. Would you ever say that to the incarnate Son of God on earth? Peter said it. And then remember what Jesus said? Get behind me. You got your sights on the things of men and not the things of God. Even the apostles, who we would call our brethren at the time, they didn't make all the connections. Once the resurrection took place, they went, dummies, we should have seen this. Why? exactly what Moses and the prophet said would take place. Then when Jesus comes into the temple in John 2, he, he throws tables over my house, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, citing Isaiah 56, which, has, which is about the days of the new covenant, which has a Sabbath in it, by the way. We'll look there. The Sabbath is in Old Testament prophecy terminating upon new covenant days. How are we going to deal with that? We'll deal with it when I get there. Like Christians, we're going to do like John Bunyan said. Pray tell. The Lord is telling us through the prophet, this is the Sabbath that Jesus will give to the Gentiles. Hmm. It's John Bunyan, so we have to agree with him, you know, Pilgrim's Progress. But here's Jesus in this, on the scene in the first century, here saying, destroy this temple. He was speaking about the temple of his body, John says, and in three days I'll raise it up, and he does. And you remember how Adam the first was supposed to extend, basically, the temple all throughout the earth, but he failed to do that? What becomes the temple of God now on the earth after the incarnate Son of God and subordinate to him? His mystical body, right? Um, Paul calls the Corinthians a temple. Peter uses temple and priestly language concerning the Christians that he was writing to. Paul says that we are a dwelling, the Ephesian church is a dwelling of God in the Spirit, a temple of the Spirit. So the localized temple gets destroyed by Jesus, ultimately in AD 70, and he is the localized manifestation and presence of God in his incarnate state. He's destroyed, he suffers unto death, he raises himself up, and then his church is described by his apostles with temple language, with priestly language, uh, we offer up spiritual sacrifices to the Lord um, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
So his mystical body then is the means through which he is slowly but surely um, manufacturing and and creating new templates all throughout the world. And when he comes again, the entire thing is the special presence of God. But until then, when we get those foretastes of glory on the Lord's day, that which we haven't tasted gets, we get snippets of it um, on the Lord's day when we gather as priests. Now, his church becomes this mystical body temple and slowly spreads to the ends of the earth. You see the importance of Christian mission, uh, desiring to make disciples other than where we are and have them baptized and taught in visible communities called churches. It, it's, 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 uh, it's what the first Adam failed to do. Cause templates to be all over the world. He sinned. Who picks up the Great Commission, the, uh, excuse me, the original Dominion Mandate? Ultimately, it's Christ. Through the church, we could say. But it's Christ. So now we have sufferings and glory, tied it to the Old Testament, the words of our Lord, the, res- the sufferings and resurrection of our Lord, destroy this temple and three days I will raise it up. His body, the church, becomes the temple of God on the earth. So we dealt with sufferings and glory very quickly. What about work and rest? You think sufferings and glory goes with work and rest? I think it does. Where do we find the language of work and rest first? Genesis 1 and 2. How does the Moses understand uh, the divine work of creation in six days and the, the, the rest on the seventh day as the basis for a Sabbath for man? When did it start? Not with Israel. Not at Mount Sinai. You can read Exodus 16 out in the wilderness before they get to Sinai. They're actually rebuked for not remembering something they should have recalled about this seventh day Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, you know, our Lord. So we have this work and rest cycle in the divine action of creation, operation in creation, and this divine rest, whatever it is. And in the sermon, I said, okay. When God works, he doesn't get tired. So whatever rest is, it's not, I need divine power pack refilled, okay? God is infinite and eternal. There's nothing, God doesn't get depleted of anything. He doesn't add to, he can't be subtracted from. Who do I tell the people that sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. God just is all that he is, perfectly, eternally, all that stuff. So whatever the rest is, you remember I said, it can't mean God gets tired. It has to be uh, some, uh, 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 some sort of symbol for man. Uh, and I, I suggested, as God worked and then entered a rest, full stop, not going back to the original work of creation again, but providence, was God kind of putting out there for man a paradigm you are ultimately to work when when you finished your work, you get glory. Remember, I said, I suggested that. I think that's exactly what happened. So 
We have this work-rest thing, but we had fall after the work-rest of the divine exemplar by mankind. But mankind is still un- supposed to work unto rest, work unto rest, work unto rest. But if you read the Bible, everybody's sending it up. Even when God formalizes this covenant with ancient Israel, they don't do a good job of keeping their end of the bargain. They get kicked out of land twice and exiled, and their temple's destroyed. They build another one. All kinds of prophets come and scold them, the prosecuting eternities, eternities, attorneys of, of Jehovah are the prophets. And the prophets often say, look, you guys have violated the covenant. This is why this happened to you. Uh, however, God's going to be merciful in the future. The New Testament picks up those merciful strands and finds them terminating in Christ and his, and his church. But here we have the div- divine work and rest, but the human never achieved it. Adam sinned. He fell. So what do you think Jesus has to do? He has to work sinlessly and then enter into rest for us and for our salvation. But it's interesting, he, he enters into rest, the state of glory, but everything else isn't glorified like that. Because if we go back to the first Adam, and we're kind of thinking out loud here, it seems like however long this probationary period would have been, Adam and the Adamites would have done their job and springboarded into that state of glory or rest that Jesus ends up taking us to. There would have been a period of time for them doing this, and then when they completed their work, boom. With Jesus, he completes his work, and it's boom for him, but not boom for everybody else connected to him, right? Why? Because he has many people yet to save, all right? Now, if the first divine work unto rest was paradigmatic, was a paradigm for man to follow in, What about the incarnate son's work unto rest paradigm? Is that like imperatible upon us? He worked unto rest. Well, we got to be careful because his work was the work of accomplishing redemption. So we say, okay, what Christians have to do is we have to work to accomplish redemption. We don't want to say that. We don't work to, we work from, right? And where was the divine symbol crash placed on the accomplishment of redemption that is on the earth. Hint, the third day, right? That's like, work's finished. When the Son of God enters the work of redemption. Redemption is accomplished. And the resurrection of our Lord, as I don't know if we'll see this, possibly in the future, New creation language is connected to the resurrection. So remember, I've said this before, I'll say it again, John Owen, the old Puritan, pray tell, what would it take for the day to be changed from the seventh to the first day? He says, why a new creation? If the resurrection is the beginning of the new creation, the the down payment, the pledge that others who are Christ's will enter in the state of existence that Christ has entered to in the future, if that's what the resurrection is, 
then the resurrection is a new creation, the beginning of the new creation, signifying that the work of redemption has been accomplished so that Christians rest first in the finished work of Christ on the first day of the week, and then we go work, but we don't work to rest, our, our soteriological rest. We don't work to justification. We work from it. We don't work to Christ, we work from Christ. So that's why I think the Hebrews text, when you understand it that way, is very, very uh, clear, encouraging, and I think the proper way to interpret it. Here are the words again. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, because Christ... has entered the divine rest proffered at creation and has rested because he entered into that glorious state from the work of accomplishing redemption. And he did that on the first day. And that first day is the beginning of the new creation. But the new creation, that which was way back preferred to Adam in the old creation, it hasn't come in its fullness. And that first divine rest was a symbol and type of something better to come. And until that thing that it symbolized or typified or looked forward to comes in its fullness, there's a weekly pledge. But the new creation kind of got snuck in the old creation by virtue of the resurrection of the Son of God. And so since the ultimate state isn't here, there's a timely, a weekly symbol, a weekly taste of that for the people of God. When? On the day of the, fir- uh, day of the new resurrection. When is that? The day the Son of God bolted out of the grave. That, that's, that's why that hymn by um, John Newton I think it just basically says it all, you know. should have just preached the, the four stanzas of the hymn. And we should have sung 324, but the preacher couldn't shut his mouth this morning. So let me read the words to 324. Please uh, turn there. We're putting together sufferings and glory, uh, work and rest. By the way, Adam's work and God's Rest in light of Christ. That's a subtitle of a book that our our sister told me she read, and I was very happy. Adam's work, God's rest in light of Christ. Suffering's glory, work, rest. Here's 324. This day at thy creating word, first o'er the earth the light was poured. So the first Day of creation, let there be light. Interesting. How about this? Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, is it? Or 6, 4. As God said, let light shine in the darkness, so God has shown in our hearts the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Go over there in the 2 Corinthians 4 passage. That has echoes of the first day of creation. Light shining in a dark place.
This day at thy creating word first o'er the earth the light was poured. O Lord, this day upon us shine, the first day of the week, and fill our souls with light divine. This day the Lord for sinners slain in might victorious rose again. So the day of light is the day of the resurrection. Think there's a connection there with creation and new creation? Of course, and even if you don't, you know that I do. Oh, Jesus, may we raise it be from death of sin to life in thee. This day, the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, first day of the week. This day, the Holy Spirit came with fiery tongues of cloven flame. O oh, Spirit, fill our hearts this day with grace to hear and grace to pray. Oh, day of light and life and grace, day of new creation, day of the incarnate Son of God's resurrection, day of the Holy Spirit's gifting. From earthly toil, sweet resting place, revolve the week around the day and not the day around the week. From earthly toil, sweet resting place, thy hallowed hours, plural, blessed gift of love, give we again to God above. All praise. We're good Trinitarian Christian Sabbatarians here. All praise to God the Father be. All praise, eternal Son, to thee, whom with the Spirit we adore forever and forevermore. Amen. It's a wonderful hymn. We actually sing it, and if I shut my mouth quick enough here, we'll sing it. We were going to sing it this morning, but it's so swampy in here, and and, um, I just decided that it was best not to sing it. You see what just happened there? We read a biblical theology of the first day. Okay, it didn't say Sabbath in that, did it? Now, John Newton's hymn, a couple four numbers over, did. But we can insert it and understand what it means. So here's the creation paradigm. Divine work unto rest. Basically, it's God saying, now, Adam, my child, I want you to fulfill your work. And when you do, you get to be a a vice-regent over the realm of creation in a way that you don't have to labor and toil. Now, he failed to get there. But God has stationed the incarnate Son of God to bring many sons to that glorious state. And that's why we're here. He's forgiven us of our sins. He suffered for us. He was righteous for us. He bore the wrath of God for us. He was dead for us. He was buried for us. He was raised for us as the first fruits of a great harvest to come. If the, if the first fruits of the great harvest to come has already taken place, you know what's going to happen? The subsequent harvest of the same harvest that's not the first fruits. The first fruits is Christ. The rest of the harvest takes place when he comes, and then we are, then we shall gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, yeah, that judgment of angels and all that weird stuff that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. You got that man over the angels. I, that's weird to me, but it's in there. Okay, so there's some sort of ruling over creation going on that's not taking place now and won't until Christ comes again. Anyway, it's all connected. The Bible's about Jesus. You need a Savior. Hallelujah, we have one. Let's pray.
We thank you, Father. We pray that you'd help these connections to be clear in our heads and hearts and that our souls would be inflamed by these truths, that we wouldn't just take them and and hoard them and keep them to ourselves, but we would open our mouths and use our lips and tongues to speak about the glory of God and the face of Christ and how you have gone about to bring uh, your children to glory through an Adamite, through the last Adam, that is, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we boast in him and his works, his accomplished redemption, his entrance into rest. We look forward to it. We pray that you'd use the supper now for our soul's well-being to strengthen us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.